0: Today, I welcome Chris Herman, Head of School at the Garden School in the USA. In this episode, we talk about real community partnerships in leading education within a small school, balancing tradition versus innovation, celebrating diversity and individualized education. I want to talk about Garden School. It's a competitive New York City independent school. How is Garden School able to maintain this identity while keeping its tuition low?
1: We're really fortunate to have a board who has always been really squarely focused on access. And so we benchmark at 50% of what most schools or 50% of the average tuition, you know, and as a result, one of the things that makes us so special is we have this really humble community. Parents are really humble. We're really a school for modest people who also prioritize education. So they're making a great sacrifice to be here, but they're not bankrupted by our tuition. I mean, it all comes from the board. It's all about board leadership. They really push on us to say, what are the, how can you make this work? We lean in on a lot of partnerships. We lean in on a lot of ancillary revenue resources. We have a mega early childhood center where we're offering free and private pay seats to folks in the community. And then we just have this understanding that we need to really lean in heavily on community partnerships. To bring in all of the opportunities, all the programs that any child in any school would have. And I'd say even more um, without charging the amount of money that every school charges.
0: And what partnerships do the garden school leverage? You mentioned quite a lot in the community.
1: We are partnered with a local arts organization, for example, that brings. So instead of having another five art teachers, we have industry professionals coming in as visiting artists. Um, It's a partnership where they get to use our facilities after school. In exchange, they teach photography, 2D digital design, media studies, another group that comes in and does portfolio art and advanced painting, partnerships with Carnegie Mellon University for their coding program. We partnered up with the Drexel University's Close School for Entrepreneurship to do some branding and social media marketing work for us. We became a case study for them. We also became a case study for a bunch of math graduate level architectural programs in the city at five or six different universities. And so they came in and helped redesign all of our spaces. Um, So these are things that would cost a lot of money in the free capital project phase, in the planning phase that we are able to do for free. And, you know, those students at those schools get this real life experience and they get to see their designs come to life on our campus. We have a really wonderful partnership with the New York City Department of Education, where we're providing all those early childhood programming, all those early childhood programs for about 210 families. And then most recently, we just signed up to partner with the South Korean government and the Boston in their East Coast economic free zone and Boston Education World, which is a firm out of Boston. um, And we're going to be opening a satellite campus in South Korea. All magical things are happening, really intense programming opportunities for kids, but without Heavy costs.
0: I can really see how these partnerships make a massive difference to your community. In my head, I'm thinking about logistics, managing it, continuity, curriculum design, getting access to the talent so that's local, that's A, willing, B, that can do it at the right time. How do you go about setting that up as a system for education? And then how do you make sure that there's continuity? Because obviously, they're giving up their time, that's their livelihood, but it's a great way of showing what's going on, but at some point they may decide to go, look, I just I don't want to do this anymore. How do you make sure there's continuity? Cause it's such a great idea.
1: Every partnership is reciprocal. And so I think that's really important as you think about developing new partnerships and coming on with with new groups. They have to be meeting a need of ours and we have to be meeting a need of theirs. And it can't be a transactional relationship. We have to be Flexible, nimble, support one another, nurture each other's missions. And if next year the timing has to shift, um, we have to see what we can do to accommodate that because we're getting a lot out of that partnership. But, uh, you know, there's a need for a group to have classroom space in the afternoon to run community based programs. If we can give that to them and they don't have to pay for that. And in exchange, they can provide this for us. It's really a mutually beneficial, reciprocally beneficial, really symbiotic relationship that we've formed a real partnership
0: also stems back to the basics of trade, which is all about barter. Barter is never done on product. It's based on time. I've got something you may want and you've got something I may want rather than us transacting in in cash. Actually, why don't we trade specialities and things that you're doing? I'm excited because, you know, you're a small school and for small schools to be able to enact so much change is fantastic. But you've been around for coming up to 100 years. You're about to celebrate your centenary. Wow. I mean, you must have seen a huge amount of growth in the school's history and also what's happening right now. How do you make sure that you keep growing in the right direction with vision for the future while still honoring some of the traditions that you've had the last hundred years?
1: You know, I think it comes back to honoring the traditions, actually. You know, this, we've been having really phenomenal outcomes for students for a hundred years, for 99 years. And so I think the things that have been working, you have to make sure that you understand what they are and you have to really keep at it. The landscape is also shifting all the time. And so, what creates success really, you know, the most optimal outcomes for a student is changing. It's changing every year. And so, I think we have honoring the things that continue to be very relevant and then following the breadcrumbs to what are universities looking for out of students? What are employers looking for out of students? What are students looking for out of schools? And I think, you know, just that being flexible. It turns out that a lot of things remain relevant that schools have been doing for a long time. And so we owe it to ourselves to think about what those are, what we've been doing. So last year, actually at the height of the pandemic, we published a new strategic plan, sorry, a year and a half ago. In there, we re, there were sort of two lanes and one was about codifying everything that makes a garden school experience really special. And the other was about all the new and exciting things that we wanna grow into.
0: When you look back and you've talked about tradition, and it's great that schools don't ignore tradition, but also when you're starting to look forward, what do you think arts of education have still remained relevant today? So, from an educational standpoint,
1: there are aspects of math that actually really haven't changed for like 2,500 years. And so, I th- actually think that some of the some of the things that Archimedes was doing back in Greece remain very relevant. I think that some of the nature of deep analysis and intellectual discourse that we can trace back to the Agora and Socrates also still remain very relevant. Those are important. Also, I look back to the photos of our school we have in our lobby. We have the a picture of every graduating class, all 90 plus of them. You know, when I see the images of what these students were doing in 1927, 1935 you know what they were engaged in was a really well-rounded education and so i think the most relevant parts of what still make a high quality program is understanding that students need to have be well versed in literature well versed in humanities and the sciences pursue advanced stem they also need to have really novel wonderful experiences with the arts and with athletics and you know and and have all of these really great experiences i think that we're we're in a time where schools and families in general were really you know, we're pushed to sign our child up for one sport and they're supposed to stay in that club sport for 12 months a year and only do that one thing. And I think we're asking kids to specialize younger and younger. We're asking schools are being asked to specialize younger and younger. And so I think that the most relevant aspect of school is this idea of you come to an academy and you learn lots of things and you leave a Renaissance person with lots of skills and and lots of knowledge.
0: The Garden School has a diverse community. I've spoken to lots of heads leading great schools around the world, all around diversity, equity, inclusion. How have you achieved this? Is it through chance because of your location and it just is the natural social economic kind of area and catchment that you pull from? Or is it through intent in design, in choice?
1: Uh, well, it's probably a little bit of both. The reality is that we are in the most diverse corner of the planet. Queens in general is an incredibly diverse place, but then this particular Northwest wedge of Queens is arguably the most diverse zip code on earth. Combine that with a lower barrier to access, and we pull most of our kids from the local areas. 90% of our kids are coming from Queens. They're coming from within five or six miles of the school. And because we're in a diverse place, that's the market, right? That's the market for children and families. And because our barrier is lower, we're not having to go so far out to find people who can afford our program. You know, so as long as we can keep our tuition at a level, I think we get to continue to enjoy that organic diversity. But then there's the what's the experience when you get here. If you're a first generation child from Bangladesh or you're a first generation child from Ecuador, you're a first generation child from Mexico. How held is your family? How supported is your family? How often do we ask about your family's priorities and goals and expectations? So I think that's where the intentionality comes in, because it's one thing to just be open. And it's another to care about who's here. So it's one of the benefits of being small, really, is that we get to know each family, we get to know their priorities, uh, we get to know their goals, match it with the different aspects of our program. And so I I think that then you find as a family, well, this is a school that actually cares about our background, cares about our context, cares about what holidays we celebrate, cares about our values and, and tries to meet
0: our needs. I mean, what challenges does this present and how are you tackling these? You know, I'm thinking. You know, a lot of areas, you know, you think about particularly Manhattan and the city, you know, all the redevelopment, it gets further, further out from the epicenter. So there's more inward investment, they more develop. And so actually the change of your community that defines you is shifting because it suddenly becomes a place that is up and coming. And so people come out there. Have you seen any of that affect your catchment and the way that you keep your diversity and your intent in terms of keeping low fees, low fees? diverse community access to great education has that been challenging at all
1: it hasn't been challenging i think it's always challenging to keep the tuition and the cost low and still do all the things that we want to do in terms of demographic changes i don't actually find that to be a real and present danger to our diversity right now it's new york and so sometimes a neighborhood can change in a flash and so i think that's always something that we have to be mindful of aware of i think as inflation goes up rents go up. This is a very expensive city. Queens still remains one of the more affordable places to be, one of the more affordable places to live. And so again, this is like we are in a space that is almost economically designed for modesty. And so hopefully that doesn't change too much. So we've got families from, like I said, Ecuador and China and Bangladesh and South Korea and Mexico, Turkey, Nepal, Russia, Ukraine, sort of really everywhere from across the world, Senegal and, and Egypt. And So I think that it's about the, in a small community, being able to understand the role of a school, you know, seventh generation families who have been in independent school expect some things from schools that first generation families from Egypt might not. I think that a lot of those first generation families view our school as kind of their foray into the American dream. What that means to them might be far more AP centric, SAT centric. Homework centric. And so I think that our challenge is really helping them understand that actually that there are softer parts of life that make for a great human and that involves the arts and that involves being involved in many, many things. And that, yes, we can balance top AP scores and AP calculus, but you know, you don't have to do homework for five hours a night in order to be competitive in this world. And so I think that that's actually where our challenge is helping redefine what people expect from schools.
0: I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And how do you celebrate the diversity within your community? Because yes, there's the obvious ones because they come from such a kind of rich Collection of nations with diversity, you've sought the American dream, you've sought the American education system, but actually, the richness of everyone's cultures and celebrating where people have come actually is what makes really great communities and it's more representative of the world. How do you celebrate that?
1: We're really celebrating it all the time in our lunchroom menu, our Lunar New Year Dragon Dance, our International Night, which is coming up in two weeks where people bring food from all over the world. We've got field trips that go to the Peruvian restaurant, our Mandarin classes. We've got little kids visiting the Chinese market and using their Mandarin skills to find different vegetables. I think we're constantly celebrating both programmatically. We just had a family who is Roma and they came in and taught the second grade about Roma music and brought in their accordion. So I think that there's just tons of things like that happening all the time. A parent in pre-K came in and ran a lesson on Rangoli art and I could go on and on and on, actually, with just the volume of, again, it's about a lot of it is about our parents being connected to the school, being involved in the school, being allowed in, and then also our school being connected to the community and us letting our students, allowing them to go out and access all of the great diversity around us.
0: And what attracted you to come in and lead a school like the Garden School? Is it because it's small? Is it because it's small and diverse? Is it because it's diverse or is it Because, you know, a small school has its challenges. Having a diverse school has its challenges. You've come in here. What kind of are the challenges that you face and what excites you most?
1: I was drawn here. First of all, I took the job right before the pandemic started and then sold our house. And then we learned that the world was changing. But we're so happy that we came here. I think that what drew me here, I've only been in small schools for the last 20 years. I think it's a joy to run a small school. The work of running a large school doesn't really appeal to me personally. Not that you can't, but it seems that it's much harder to build really deep, meaningful relationships with whole families, with children over the years. So I think small school for me is very important. Small school for us as a family where you know our kids are here. And so that's really important to us as well. Diversity has always been really important to us. So when we lived in Philadelphia, we selected the school where we would bring our family based on how dynamic the community was. That's always been important to us. I like the challenges of small schools, because small schools, smaller, we're not tiny, we're smaller, but smaller schools also, I think that they often are the more accessible schools in the community of schools. Those are fun challenges. How do you maintain a more accessible and yet totally autonomous independent school for people who have more modest means than those that might be able to access the $60,000 $70,000 a year?
0: Yeah. And what other challenges would you have in a small school? I
1: think they're often logistical, to be honest with you, especially as you work with older students. It's about if we only have two sections of AP calculus, it's about scheduling those so that they don't lock your schedule up. I think it's also logistical. When you have one hundred and twenty five students in your high school, you really want to make sure that students feel they've got a lot of social fluidity and that they can interact with lots of different people. Often for me, it comes back to scheduling in really unique and novel ways, which maybe comes back to the beginning of our conversation around the role of the arts and thinking about the creative process and looking at a schedule. Because you don't want the ninth graders to only see ninth graders in a class of 30. You want them to be exposed to lots of different people, build relationships across grades. And so that takes creative planning, takes novel scheduling. And you want everybody to have access to lots of programs that tap into their personal passions, their personal interests and talents and their strengths. And so you want to make sure that they're not limited by your size. And I think that oftentimes, you know, the menu gets limited by the amount of resources that you have, which is why we're so committed to these partnerships, because we can expand the menu for students so they can sort of have whatever they want.
0: And how do you provide this individualized education? Because you're a smaller school, so, you know, you talk about it, having this individualized education, you know, how individual is it?
1: Well, I think some people mistake, and I don't know if this is the case where you are, but in America, some people mistake, quote, individualized education for special education. The nomenclature that I'm a little more comfortable with is around personalized education. I think it's unfortunate that the word individualized has sort of come to mean something that not necessarily what it was intended. But I think the most important foundation to personalized learning is knowing the individual. That's one of our great gifts as a smaller school. You know, for years, students have been going to schools that are designed and they show up and attend and it has nothing to do with them. Here, we're actually designing our program around the children that we have and then evolving to follow their interests, their strengths, their passions, their goals. That's just different. You know, it's different than a large setting where you often organize children based on their alphabetical order of their last name, and that's how you decide which history class they go to or which science section they go in. And that's how we've been thinking about growing a lot of our new programs. We've selected which ones to prioritize based on the students that we have. Can't do everything all at once. Let's push on engineering this year. Let's push on the arts this year. Let's push on strings this year based on the students that we know are here right now and who are going to benefit from that in the next year, the next two years, the next three years. And so they get to see their actual interests, strengths and talents reflected in the schedule next year. So we can say to them, what do you want? They can tell us and then we do it, which is the most personalized learning that I can think of.
0: Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, it's what you want for any one of your children is to go off and thrive, to enjoy what they're learning. And too often you get in a system of education where you have to go with the horde and you know, you have to go down a direction because that's the conveyor belt that's going to take you here to the point that you need to matriculate and go off to college or go somewhere else. So, And schools always find it difficult to break away from that. You must have some outliers in that because, you know, in terms of the, if it's a normal distribution, you're going to kind of get the majority in there who maybe want to get into the engineering side. How do you deal with the outliers? Because there'll always be exceptions who are kind of like, it's not quite what I want to do. Is that sort of natural selection and maybe they look elsewhere or Do you look at ways in which to even look at the ones at either end of the curve?
1: I mean, we're not doing only one thing at a time. So I think that, you know, while we're investing in engineering, let's imagine last year, we may have invested $10,000 in an engineering program and $2,000 in the arts. And then we'll lean in our partnerships to make sure that the opportunities are there for the other things. I think it's just about choice. It's about having an appropriate menu. So, you know, for 120 students in our upper division, they have a choice one period of the day between theater, vocal, visual arts, media arts, advanced painting and drawing, robotics, engineering, you know, just many, many things. And so it's, it's, I think that we cover a wide enough range of passion areas that everybody can have their needs met. I suppose if someone came in and said, I really want something, I don't know, fencing, I actually think that we would try to make it happen if we could. If they want something that requires significant investment, I think we would look for a partner, we would try to make it happen. We try not to say no.
0: And a lot of the time anyway, I can imagine that you have to balance off whether it's the science, the humanities, the arts, you've got to have a sort of balance anyway, because you can't all just go down one direction, because you will always naturally kind of deselect some students. Is it easy to measure success? Is success the access to the next level of education? Is success Beyond that, where you look at, you know, all of your alum and where they've gone and who they've become and just wondered whether or not you have that, not necessarily as analytical stuff, but is there another way you measure
1: it? You know, there are ways to quantify successful acquisition of content knowledge. When I think about, you know, that might be a standardized assessment. We don't do too many of those. Our students take APs, they take SATs, they matriculate to really exceptional colleges. That's always a good endorsement of your program and sort of the portrait of the graduate that you're producing, there's also just how happy is your community? Do you have kids who are getting into MIT, but also contemplating their own existence? Or do you have kids who are getting into MIT and also laughing a lot? So I think for us, there's that definition of rigor that I think scares me for teenagers. And then there's our definition of rigor, which is you There you can still have a lot of fun in school, and you can still do a lot of things and have all these Quantifiable successes and still have a high level of joy, have all these qualitative indicators of success, which are happy people, engaged people, kind people, well rounded people who are not freaking out.
0: It's not a pressure pot. The research definitely shows that happy kids perform better because they relax into an environment, they're enjoying the learning experience that they're going through, they apply themselves better. And if everyone's bought into it, then results will come it's when you're driven trying to get so much content in to get across this barrier to get to the next stage and just don't think it's relevant for now and moving forward um, we have to shake it up
1: well i think you really you know hit the nail on the head there with you know neuroscience neuro research says that people do better when they are relaxed our frontal lobes can not be fogged with stress because we can't hear as well we can't process information as well we can't learn and produce Responses as well. And so, you know, happy kids really are better off. Happy kids really are able to do math better. And I actually think that coming back to some of those enrichment programs, they help produce happy kids. And so if we invest academic real estate in those times of the day for things like the arts and music and robotics and dance and fitness and all these other wonderful programs that kids do better in math, they do better in literature, they do better in some of the harder, more traditional subjects if they have all this joy from the softer classes.
0: I want to wrap up by asking you to look into your crystal ball. And, you know, what would the future of education look like to you in the next 50 years, by 2050, let's say?
1: I think there are lots of schools that are trying really novel things. I see some really innovative practices coming out of public ed, out of magnet schools, out of site select schools in in big cities. You know, one thing that I hope we will see is moving away from the giant school model where tens of thousands of kids are supervised and thought of under one mega umbrella. I think that some of the bigger schools in New York City and Philadelphia and Los Angeles are already doing really interesting work where they're taking that big school of 2,000 kids and creating sort of sub-schools within the school so that they can get to know students on a deeper level, understand their needs, their strengths, their priorities, and personalize their learning. Uh, I think technology is obviously a big game changer. You know, who knows what the future of virtual reality is going to be in the classroom. I get excited about all of that. I love walking into first grade and watching, you know, kids with VR goggles on doing, you know, a a virtual field trip to somewhere, you know, dissecting something in another space. So I think that we'll get to see a lot of that. And I think that also coming out of the pandemic, we learned that schools can be far more nimble, far more flexible, Um, far more individualized or personalized than I think we gave ourselves credit for before. You know, I think we took whole organizations and turned them on their heads overnight to just provide basic education. I think that there's a lot to take away from that, that we can actually have massive change very quickly and quality programs can come out of that. We don't have to be afraid of that kind of flexibility and and nimbleness.
0: You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.